Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and in this week's episode, I talk with John Warlow, the author of Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of Selling Your Business. John also runs a very successful SaaS company called Value Builder that is aimed at business advisors and brokers. In my experience of this business world, John is one of the most knowledgeable people about real business exits. This is not Instagram selling for a billion dollars in a weekend. This is about software companies, agencies, manufacturing companies, e-commerce, just, you know, the thousands or hundreds of thousands of exits that are below the radar, that are not on the front of TechCrunch, and that are businesses that sometimes sell for multiples of EBITDA, or in the case of SaaS, often sells for multiple of revenue. But these are not 100x revenue. These are those realistic business exits. And John has interviewed hundreds of founders over on Built to Sell Radio, if you're interested in hearing more about that. But today, he and I dive in how to decouple yourself from your business by creating standard operating procedures and I know you've heard this before, you should create SOPs, we know. So we go a little bit into why and how that can increase your exit multiple, but also how it can reduce your earnout if you do decide to sell your company and how it can make your job as a founder easier while you're running the company. And so we don't just talk about theory though, we actually talk about this tool that he and his team have developed through a lot of iteration and a lot of customer conversations. It's called vidguide at vidguide.com. And they've taken a really novel tact on it, not only how to create SOPs, but how to get your team to consume them. And so we dive into that topic for the next 30 or so minutes. John was previously on Startups for the Rest of Us in 2021, episode 532, The Art of Selling Your Business with John Warlow. It is one of the most popular episodes of this show. If you haven't heard that, it's amazing. John, since he is an interviewer, is a good interviewee because he knows what it takes to put together a good show. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with John. John Warlow, back for more punishment. I just can't get enough, Walling. <laughs> it's so good to have you here, man. Thanks for taking <laughs> the time. with you. Yeah, so most folks will remember your episode. It's one of the more popular episodes of the show. It came out about two years ago about uh, building and selling an incredible business. I believe that was right around the time The Art of Selling Your Business, which was your third book, came out. That's right, and yeah. We touched on just a little bit of that. So you're back, and it's to talk more about exits. Obviously, each of us learn things as time goes on, and I'm sure you have some new stuff to share with us. The first thing I want to kick us off with is, so you're John Warlow. Most people know your name. You've written three books on you know, how to sell a business and how to think it through. And you have a successful SaaS company, SaaS application for advisors called Value Builder. So in addition now, you've launched another SaaS. So this is a lot, John, all right? I, as someone who runs two companies plus a podcast and writes books, I know how much this is. So why did you need to launch the, the SaaS? It's called vidguide at vidguide.com. What was the impetus for that? Well, there's there's sort of a a a very quantitative impetus and then more of a qualitative one. I'll give you the quantitative one first. And that is that for value builder, again, sales and marketing software for advisors, we have everybody, the business owners who use it, take a kind of an intake questionnaire. There's eight questions, talk about recurring revenue and growth potential. And one of the questions is this thing called hub and spoke, which measures the, the dependence that company has on its owner that we're assessing. 
And it turns out that across all eight dimensions, the one that business owners score the lowest on is hub and spoke. So this idea that they can build a company that's successful, that's got recurring revenue, but if they get hit by a bus, the, the business stops almost instantly. And so that was sort of the quantitative impetus, if you will. Qualitatively, though, I had sort of a more embarrassing story. When we got to, oh, maybe 20 employees for Value Builder, so this goes back three or four years ago now, we started to see problems in our own system. So at 20 employees is where you sort of start to have, you can't have everybody reporting to the founder anymore. You've got to have some layers, right? You know this from Drip and so forth. And so I was noticing we were making silly little trivial mistakes all over the place. And, and, and oftentimes they had sort of knock-on effects. So one example comes to mind. It, we use Salesforce for contact management. And people would enter people's names in all capital letters. So it'd be like Rob, capital R, capital O, capital B. And so we'd be emailing these people, sort of yelling at them. And, and uh, so something that's just like so simple as to, no, no, don't put names in full capitals when you enter them into CRM. I mean, again, that's a trivial example. And so we got the idea, okay, we've got to create standard operating procedures, right? We've got to create these systems. And I actually hired a lady who was sort of a Six Sigma, you know, black belt and very, very experienced in this concept of SOPs. And she made the most beautiful binder of SOPs, right? Even like with flow charts and, you know, it was like a, a full eight and a half, 11, you know, binder full of these things. And I announced to our team, hey, we've, we've hired this person. She's made these amazing standard operating procedures. I expect everybody to use them. And uh, so I kind of put it to bed thinking, okay, this is solved. We got it all cleaned up, ready to go. <laughs> and like three days later, of course, I see the same mistakes rearing their ugly heads. And what I had sort of hadn't realized is that the people who I'd asked to consume and use these SPs were ignoring them. And so that was the impetus or the, the kind of qualitative journey that I wanted to go on. And I'm trying to understand like, why were you not using the, the processes we wrote in these binders? And so you were trying to solve your own problem, right? In software, it's eating your own dog food or scratching your own scratching itch, your own yeah. itch which, yeah, yeah, which, are, yeah. which are fine. And I think the, the majority of probably SaaS companies are started that way, but not the super majority. It's usually like 50, 60%. We actually survey the audience and scratching your own itch is fine. But a mistake I see folks make, especially developer, builder, entrepreneurs is I have the problem, therefore everyone does. Or I have the problem, therefore it's worth paying for and other people will will pay for it, right? So there's a usually a validation step that I ask folks to do after that is, okay, you do have this problem. Can you find five, 10, 20 others who have it? Can you find out how desperate of a problem? Is it an aspirin or a, a vitamin? Can you find out maybe how much they would pay for it? You know, that kind of stuff. There's more research or validation beyond that. I'm curious if, if you went through any of those steps or if, you know, given that you do have audience and you have reach into in sites into a lot of companies, where you went from there. Like, we have a problem. I know that I could probably solve this with software, but were there other steps you took? Yeah, I mean, we talked qualitatively to Built to Sell readers. So Built to Sell has a website. And so we have people who've opted in to receive communication from us. So we went to them and talked to them about how do you think about standard operating procedures? What are your frustrations about SOPs? Do you use them? If not, why not, et cetera. So we talked to and did surveys with both qualitative and quantitatively with the built to sell audience. Uh, we talked to a lot of the people, past guests, actually, I've interviewed on built to sell radio. I talked to them, particularly the SaaS founders, people like Dave Darman, who I know think you've had on, on this show. I talked to Dave and others about like, what is it about getting 
getting business, getting employees to follow SOPs. And what we learned was the world doesn't need another SOP software. There's lots of great sort of written SOP software out there. What we came to learn through the research was the problem was slightly different than we'd originally thought it was that what the research was telling us is that business owners knew they needed SOPs that this was not a surprise to them. The problem they were experiencing was the same one I was experiencing, which was they weren't using the SOPs. They couldn't get employees to use them. And that's a slightly different problem than like convincing business owners they need SOPs. We also looked at just the, we have a bunch of downloads on our website and we looked at the most popular. We have this thing called a definitive guide for creating SOPs, I think is what the white paper is called, but it's an ebook effectively. And it's along with like 12 other ebooks and it's the most popular one in our kind of suite of ebooks. And so that was again, another sort of sign that SOPs in particular, getting them to work in a business was something our kind of universe cared about. Right. So it's less about the software to build them. It's getting people to use them. So how did you, how did you solve that? What did you do different is really, I mean, I had a question written down that was like, why build another SOP creations piece of software? Cause there, I can pick five or 10, I can hit Google. So what did you do differently? Yeah. So, so what we learned is that when we talked to employees and the owners of their companies as to why they weren't using SOPs, it came down to two things. They, they were hard to find in the moment and they were hard to read when they accessed them. And so hard to find is like my boss put them in a shared drive, which is what we did, by the way. At the time, I think we used Dropbox or Google Drive. I can't remember it was Dropbox at the time. And we just put them in a folder deep sort of into the file architecture, six you know, layers in. And people just couldn't find it when, they're, when they had a moment they were actually talking to a customer. They couldn't find it. And so they skipped the, the SOP. So it's hard to find. Uh, and the second problem is that for a lot of us, it's hard to read. I'm not a great reader. I, I'm a slow reader. I don't know if I'm actually dyslexic, but I think I have a, a slight orientation towards dyslexia, which means that a written document for me is hard to follow. I can do it, but I need a lot of time. And so those were the two things we found out. And so the idea that we came up with was to create Loom for SOPs. And so you think about Loom, we've all used it for sharing you know, videos and so forth. And again, this came, we came by this idea honestly, because in my own company, what I found out is when people had a problem, they weren't referring to this giant manual that we'd, we'd spent a lot of money creating. They were recording a quick Loom video and just shooting it to the employee who needed it to know, know how to fix the problem. And so here we are spending all this money on SOPs, and yet we were bypassing them to ship like little Loom videos. And so we thought, okay, if Loom works, people want video, it's easier to consume and digest and metabolize video than it is written SOPs. So video works. What's the problem with Loom? Well, Loom's a great tool, and and it's perfect for some things. However, what we found was that we were still, when you're sending a Loom in an email, finding that Loom video weeks later when you need it again to watch back was difficult. It was again, sifting through email. And so what we built is this thing called Flight Path, which means that you can tag a video to a piece of software. And so for example, if you're trying to convince or to explain to your employee how to send an invoice out of QuickBooks, as an example, you can tag your vid guide to QuickBooks, quickbooks quickbooks.com. And then when your employee logs into quickbooks.com, the video pops up in front of them. So it's kind of like right in front of them, which is what 
we've heard again and again is that people value the in-context sort of idea of, of seeing it in context when they're doing the work. So if you need to figure out how to send an email out a drip, as an example, or you know, build a lead page or whatever, you can tag the, the instructions to the actual software people are using. So that's sort of how we sort of solve for and made it different than Lim. It's also got step builder. Have you, you've interviewed Arvid Carl on the show, have you? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I, I interviewed Arvid for Built to Sell Radio and I, he was describing to me the sale of his company and to transfer feedback panda, he had like a one hour video he shot for the buyer of the business, Kevin McArdle, and basically described how all of the code worked, the code base, like how it all sort of stitched together. And I showed our vid, vid guide and he's like, man, if I had had this, it would have been so much easier because the other thing we built is Step Builder, which allows you to basically take a one hour video that you can shoot and break it into little mini bite-sized videos, create a process. So it's kind of again, built from the ground up for creating and sharing SOBs. Right. And it's a video first platform that focuses on that. Yeah. 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 And that's, see, that's super interesting. I remember you and I had a conversation at dinner at one point. In you Minneapolis. Were, yep. yep. You were explaining VidGuide to me. And my, my question honestly was, there are so many out there. How are you different? And the moment, the, the kind of the spark moment for me was when you said, if you're teaching someone QuickBooks and they go to QuickBooks, it's a, cause it's a plugin, right? It's like a Chrome plugin or it's a, a Chrome so, plugin. Yep. Yeah. And it just says, we have a vid guide, like what we have a company vid guide for this site. Like that is the genius moment, right? Because then I don't have to ever think where's the Dropbox directory, where's the binder on my shelf, right? Exactly. Yeah. Super interesting. And so I'm curious. So a lot of times innovations like this, because you've obviously created kind of a novel solution to this. So there's two things that can happen when you think of a novel software solution. One is it's like ahead of its time and people are like, uh, we're used to doing it this way and you're kind of asking us to change behavior, right? So that let's talk about that first. I'm curious if that's happened. The second thing that happens is the moment people say, oh my gosh, that's a great idea, competitor copies it. And then you're like, then you're stuck with like, okay, now I'm competing against them on brand and other things, right? It's like, it's not that you can't outcompete them, but a novel feature is only a novel feature until it's replicated, right? 100%. So on the first one though, have you found that folks are resistant to it because it's maybe different than the ways they've done it in the past? Yeah, which is why we've moved to live onboarding. You know, you can get a bid guide account for as low as 29 bucks a month. There's different stages depending on how many employees you have and so forth. But we assumed, okay, for that price point, we've got to do everything uh, electronically. Like it's got to be all digital onboarding. It's got to be videos. It's got to be, and again, ironically, because it's a video platform, we really have found that it's worth investing the time in doing a live onboarding. And so what I mean by live onboarding is basically a human being scheduled into a scheduling software where there's a point in time where someone from our team jumps on a call with somebody else and says, tell me about your business. What are you trying to standardize? What are you trying to create processes for? And it's that sort of, to your point, it's the change in behaviors, the change of way of thinking of SOPs that's required more heavy lifting than we thought. So it's got us thinking right now we're doing, and I know you've talked about this on Startups with the Rest of Us a ton, is like, do it analog first, figure out how to get the onboarding right in a very high touch way, knowing that it doesn't scale forever, but but it's better to do it right up front. So we've moved to full kind of white glove concierge sort of onboarding, which is expensive and time consuming, but I think it's working to to solve the first problem. The second problem you raise is another good one we've, we, we think a lot about, which is what happens when one of the other kind of SOP software out there does exactly what 
what we're offering, which of course they all have resources to do. Many of them are venture backed. A couple of things on that. Our vision is to really be loom for SOPs from the ground up. So everything we think about is, is really about internal knowledge sharing. So unlike some of the other platforms where they might serve dual purposes, might be a sales enablement tool or, or, you know, for sharing things with your customers, we're really saying, no, this is designed for the ground up for employees. And so what that means is that we're, we're always optimizing for that. So yes, somebody could knock off flight path, which is the little pop-up inside a Google, Google Chrome browser, but we've got sort of four or five other features that you wouldn't really build unless you were building it for SOP. So again, I mentioned Step Builder, which allows you to take a long video and make it into little steps, swap out one step, re-record another video. All these things you probably wouldn't do if you were just a screen recording software or just an SOP software. Another one we thought about is, you know, you have somebody new join your team. You want to instantly grant them access to all of the SOPs that correspond with their job description. So basically you swap out your bookkeeper for bookkeeper A to bookkeeper B. You want bookkeeper B to have all the stuff that bookkeeper A had access to, or you have someone new join your sales team. You want that new person to instantly have access. So you can basically flip a button and then they've got access to all of the vid guides that correspond to being a new salesperson in your company, for example. So it's like departmentalized, which is again, something you probably wouldn't do if it was just screen sharing software. So those are some of the ways that we're trying to kind of, I don't want to say stay ahead of, because I think they're just different products and different use for different reasons. But if we just stay really focused on in our lane, which is really about sharing standard operating procedures with your employees, then I think, I think we'll be okay. Even if other people match us kind of on certain features, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's how I'd be thinking about it too, right? When folks, early stage entrepreneurs will come on this podcast and I usually ask them, how are you differentiated? And do you have, you know, brand is included in that. Like, do you have a brand that's strong enough to, to hold it? And I feel like you being ahead of the market right now are in a pretty good spot to uh, to defend that. We touched on it a little bit earlier about why SOPs, standard operating procedures, are so important for a business, both while it's running to keep the founder sane and if you go to exit, right? It's, it's, it makes such a difference. In terms of having a business that is just, I'm doing, a, have a SaaS business that's doing several million a year and I have no SOPs versus one that is completely, you know, not reliant on the founder. Do you have any experience or examples of someone who you've heard have a, have a great success story because they were so SOP'd up, so to speak, or someone who had a really bad story because it was just completely reliant on them? Just any, any thoughts or examples? I know you've interviewed hundreds of founders. Yeah, yeah. A couple come to mind instantly. So again, Arvid Carl, who you've had, started Feedback Panda. I'd encourage people to, many of your listeners know Arvid. He's a prominent guy in the community. He built Feedback Panda and, as I mentioned, recorded a video that basically showed the new acquirers how to run the business. And I think if you asked Arvid, it was really more about how to get through due diligence, take a letter of intent to closure. Because of course, when in a prospect or in a, when a, an acquirer is at the due diligence stage, that's when all the red flags get raised in their mind. It's like, how will I be able to run this? How will this thing go when Arvid leaves? Is it going to continue? And so it really, I think, allayed the acquirer, got him to close on the deal and actually you know, consummate the deal. So I think that was helpful for Arvid. Another person, have you had Jody Cook on the show? Mm-mm. 
okay, Jody Cook would be a, a great, uh, she wrote a, a wonderful book called The 10-Year Career, but she would be good to get on the show at some point. But Jody built a company called JC Media, Jody Cook Media. So the early days, she was a digital uh, social media agency and it was all her and all the clients wanted her. I mean, classic story of a service business, right? Where the, all the clients wanted her. And she was a, is a very independent woman. I was like, I don't want to be the bottleneck here. I don't want to be the client's best friend for all of these clients. And so she started creating standard operating procedures and she got an offer to acquire her company. And I believe, again, I'm going by memory a little bit, but I think the offer was somewhere around seven times earnings, but 60% of it was in an earnout, meaning that Jody was being asked to stay on in the future and hit targets in the future and so forth. And Jody's like, no, no, you, you don't understand. Like I've created standard operating procedures. I've, I've built this business so it doesn't depend on me. Uh, the acquirer didn't buy it, but she just doubled down on SOPs and she leaned even further into it, creating uh, like a whole kind of library of standard operating procedures such that she was really at the time of her ultimate exit, not working in the business at all. She got an offer, premium offer, 100% cash at closing. And the reason she was able to close without an earnout is her standard operating procedures. Again, an earnout is like the enemy of any entrepreneur, right? Like we're all entrepreneurial, we're all independent minded. And an earnout is where like you you have the golden handcuffs and you have three, five years where you're working for a company and it's horrible. And it can be horrible, I should say. And so standard operating procedures can help alleviate, minimize the importance of an earnout. It may not eliminate it completely, but but certainly reduce the proportion of your proceeds that are at risk. It worked for Jody, and, and I think she's another example that comes to mind. And folks listening to this podcast love to hear about validating ideas, early experiments or mistakes that someone might make because we all make them. And you and I emailed a little bit, you know, in preparation for this. And you talked about, hey, look, and John, I've made this exact same thing where it's like, I have an audience. People know who I am. I'm going to launch Drip at the time, right? It's 2013. And then I launched it and it beat it fine. And then it just plateaued really quick. And it turns out people were buying because they were, they wanted to make me happier. They wanted to help me out. And I re, we really hadn't built something people wanted. And it took about another 10 months of building before we, Isn't that interesting? yeah, before we launched automations, found product market fit. So I call it actually the curse of the audience where it's this counterintuitive thing of I, I have 50,000 people, however many I have on an email list, right? And if you email them and said, hey, I'm going to build this thing, would you use it? A lot of people will say yes. A lot more than would otherwise say yes if you didn't have that audience. And so you can get these, these noisy or, or just incorrect signals from your own list. And then you have to start sorting out what's real, what isn't, who really needs this, how long will they stick around and all that stuff. So with that said, early validation of VidGuide, I'm sure you went to, you know, to your own built-to-sell list. You want to talk us through how that's gone? Yeah, for sure. So we've had, I think... I'll share with you two different experiences. One validates your point. One maybe provides a different perspective. The first that provides somewhat different perspective is when we first launched VidGuide, we really wanted to set this up as its own company. We didn't want this to be like SOPs by Built to Sell, for example. We really wanted it to be an independent brand, in part because like Built to Sell has its own shtick, its own sort of VidGuide is a different different offering. And so we wanted to be separate. And so we created a sequence of landing pages as you do to test, you know, the site. And, and we were getting terrible conversion rates. Like our conversion rate on a landing page was hovering between two and 3%, really bad. 
and so we were driving all this traffic and we tried, you know, we obviously our own list, we tried some, some SEO stuff, some, some PPC stuff, and, and we were just getting really bad conversion rates. And when I looked at the landing pages sort of through the lens of like, what, what would a business owner see when they see this? It's a URL they'd never heard of, VidGuide. It's a product that they probably never used or maybe have thought about something similar, but not exactly the same. There's no immediate corollary unless they're a big user of Loom, for example. And there's just no brand equity there at all. And so there's no trust. And we're saying, hey, sign up for a seven-day free trial. And they're like, uh, no. And they bounce off the landing page. And so we made one very important but subtle difference to the landing page. We put the cover of the book on the landing page and we said, you know, the folks behind VidGuide are the same folks that are behind the book Built to Sell, which has been endorsed by Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss and blah, blah, blah. And that one change, having the book on the landing page, boosted our conversion rates from where they were, kind of two to three. We're up around 18% right now and have not really made any material differences other than the book on the cover. Now, I would I would agree with you, by the way, Rob, that we have had some customers who are like, I like the book. I'll sign up for anything that has the book on it. And I don't, you know, like that's just, there is a portion of the market that like the brand and therefore we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really in the market for recipe software, but I, you know, I like the brand. And so, th- so it, it does come with that as a caveat. What I would also tell you is that what we've learned is that an endorsement and probably because it's a relatively new category, an endorsement from an advisor or like a, just a trusted source is a big deal. We've tracked conversion rates to paid on people who sign up through our own list, built to sell the built to sell list, versus when one of our value builder advisors makes a recommendation to use VidGuide. And in the latter case, our conversion rates are much higher. Again, it makes sense, right? It's someone you trust, someone you know, someone you've worked with in the past saying, hey, you guys should use VidGuide. Like it, it's a huge endorsement. And that really does spike our conversion rates from, from trial to paid. Actually, later this month, I'm not sure when this pod will, will go live, but we're looking at, uh, we are launching it officially to the Value Builder Advisor community and, and, and looking to, uh, to mobilize that community as well, because it's a really important issue for them. This hub and spoke score is one of the big reasons that the businesses don't reach their full potential because they're just too dependent on the other. So like we're singing from the same hymn book there, but, but that was a learning for sure. The other learning, I know you've, have you had April Dunford on the show? Yes. April's spoken at microconf and I've definitely had her on the microconf on air, which is a live stream show. I'm pretty sure I've had her on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. She's great by the way. She's folks should check out her book if they haven't already done so, but she's great. And she talks about positioning a lot and that means that's, that is her shtick for sure. And April, we went through April's sort of methodology for VidGuide. And before we did, you know, we were talking a lot about the importance of standard operating procedures. So our messaging was like, hey, you need standard operating procedures in your company. And what we came to learn through the April Dunford messaging exercises is is that that's actually not the message. Because again, most people listening to this, most business owners know they need SOPs. Like it's not, it's not, they've all read the e-myth, like it's not a big revelation to them that they need standard operating procedures. What they do need though, and what we sort of pivoted early in the process, again, thanks to April, is this idea of 
of what your real pain point is getting your employees to follow the SOPs you've got or getting your employees to follow what's in your head. You know, many entrepreneurs say, well, I've got an SOP and, and you get them to point to it and, and they're like, well, no, no, it's like everybody knows it. Like this is the way it's done. And what they realize it's in their head and they haven't ever actually articulated it or recorded it or whatever. So April was super helpful in getting us to kind of pivot from Here's why you need SOPs to the problem that you need an aspirin for, which is getting your employees to follow the SOPs you already have. And see, that's interesting too, because a lot of tools, you you could use a lot of tools to create SOPs, but how can I find a tool that helps my employees use SOPs? It's like, I don't know. So if you are able to do that and you're able to, which obviously you are with the Chrome browser and how it pop, you know, the Chrome plugin and how it pops up, that is a much more difficult problem to solve because that's, you know, again, a lot of listeners of this show know how to build tools and a tool can build a, help you build SOPs. But a tool on its own, I think, might struggle to get people to use them unless you have a very creative, you have a deep understanding of your customers, right? The fact that you have this Chrome plugin and the fact that you have the organizational structure that you said where everything's tied, you know, can be tied into the different applications. Without focusing on that, on getting employees to use it, as you said, I guess it's super easy to have them not, right? To create them and just have them not. Yeah. It's also one of the hidden little secrets of VidGuy is that I think a lot of us as entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to on my pod are, are the essence, we're, we're kind of control freaks, right? Like we, we, there's a certain way we want it done. And it's probably why we've been successful to some extent is because it's like, no, it's got to be this good. It's got to be done this way. And what we've built is the ability to kind of just basically snoop on your employees. So when you share a vid guide with an employee and, and you say, hey, this is kind of how I want you to do it. And you, you tag it to QuickBooks or whatever software you want them to use when they're doing the, the activity, then you can actually see through reporting console, like have they watched it? How far into it did they watch it? Did they rate it? Did they provide comments? So you can, you can kind of say like, Hey, I sent you this fit guide. I've, but you didn't watch it. And so the reason you're making this mistake is because you haven't done what I told you to do. So it gives, it gives owners a, like a little bit of snooping ability, which I think some have told us that that's super valuable for them, right? Like is the ability to, it's not the most uh, progressive way to manage a team, but some people like to kind of inspect what they expect. <laughs> I say less snooping. I say more about accountability. All right. You're, you're saying because it in a nicer way. <laughs> if, if I give someone potato, potato, if I give someone a binder, you're right. You just have no idea. Right. Did they look at it or not? And if they, if I send them a video and they don't watch it and then they do it wrong, that's a problem. If they don't watch it and they do it right, fine. They, I'm not going to micromanage you, but if you don't watch it, then you do it not and the way I said to do it. Making the same mistake. Yeah. Yep. That's a real problem. Yeah, for sure. John Warlow, thanks so much for joining me today. You are John Warlow on Twitter. And of course, vidguide.com, if they want to hear what uh, we were talking about today, as well as your three books, Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of Selling Your Business. We'll link all those up in the show notes. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rob. It was super fun. Thanks again to John for joining me. Thank you for coming back every week. If you keep listening, I will keep making these episodes. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 667. 